This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So yeah, I'm giving this, this talk to you here on this uh, young men's retreat at Padmaloka on the theme of the way of the warrior. This talk is called the way of the Dharma warrior. And this is a really good theme, actually, uh, a, th- a theme on the uh, warrior. Um, we don't often have retreats on warriors these days, do we? Uh, so it's really good to have a, a retreat on that. So I'm going to go back, actually, in time to 1978. Uh, I was 21. I'd been an order member for two years. At that time, I was living at what we called Sakavati, the old fire station in Bethnal Green, um, what's now the London Buddhist Centre. Um, I was doing plastering work, um, kind of, and uh, not great plastering work, and labouring, a bit of bricklaying, that kind of thing. Um, it was an incredible time in the movement, a time of real uh, development, um, you know, things, things emerging. Um, by the end of the year, I'd be in India, helping Lokamitra to start uh, Dharma activities uh, among the Dalit Buddhists uh, in India, and that was a, an extraordinary uh, period of my life. But in 1978, I attended my first order convention. An order convention is a big gathering of the order. We've just had a very big order convention in India at Bodh Gaya. Uh, in those days, a big gathering of order members was about 30 or 40 people, 40 or 40 order members, if that. We all went away to a big school in Sussex. And on this convention, Bhante Sangharakshita, uh, the founder of our order, my teacher, led all the meditations, led all the pujas. Um, being a very keen disciple, I sat right out the front uh, next to him. Uh, and uh, it's incredible meditating with, with Sangharakshita. It's extraordinarily still. Extraordinarily still. Not just a stillness of body but he really felt that stillness of mind and at the end of meditations and pujas he'd spent ages just sitting there just looking in front of him I mean you know we were all kind of wanting to get up and get out and play football or something but um, (laughs) uh, he was extraordinarily still Um, and he gave during that convention some very important talks as well as introducing talks by Young order members, including myself, I got to give a talk introduced by Sangharachita, which was um, an interesting experience. And there was a very good atmosphere on this convention. And Sangharachita gave three very important talks. One on going for refuge, which is such a central theme in our order, talked about levels of going for refuge. Another talk on the system of meditation, which is quite a popular theme these days in in the movement, just looking at the way in which our meditation practices hold together, how they form a kind of path. Um, It's a, uh, you know, talks of long-term significance. And he gave one other, uh, not such a well-known talk, but it had a very big impact, certainly a very big impact on me and some of my friends. It was a talk called A Vision of History. And he began his talk with stories uh, visions even of the Sangha, the spiritual community. Uh, he told stories, for example, about the Buddha sitting up all night in under a full moon with 1,250 of his full-time wandering disciples. We usually call them monks, but uh, they were patch-robed wanderers. So 1,250 of them sitting out all night long in the deepest, profoundest silence the Aryan silence, the silence that begins when you enter second dhyana, where there's no mental activity, sitting, of course, in the most profound harmony imaginable, beyond any ideas of self and other. That was one story he told very vividly. And gradually, as his talk went on, he spoke about other spiritual communities in history, not just about Buddhist spiritual communities, even 
non-Buddhist spiritual communities. He had a lot to say about Manichaeism. Manichaeism, an early dualist tradition founded by a Persian named Mani, who was an artist, a painter, uh, a profoundly non-violent tradition which spread all over Central Asia, even North Africa. I believe St. Augustine was originally a Manichaean, but which in the end was completely wiped out by a combination of Renaissance Zoroastrianism and emerging Islam. The destruction was so effective of Manichaeism, we've been left with only fragments of what is obviously a very rich spiritual tradition, and our knowledge of it is very patchy indeed. Before going further, I probably need to define what's meant by a spiritual community, a Sangha. Uh, by a spiritual community, a Sangha, um, I don't mean, and Sangharakshita doesn't mean, a religious organisation, a religious group. A Sangha, a spiritual community, is a community of individuals. But Sangharakshita uses this term individual in a special way. He doesn't mean an individualist. An individualist is essentially a selfish person who defines themselves in opposition to others. By an individual, Sangha actually means someone who has started to really wake up. To really wake up to what this life is really for. By an individual, Sangha actually means someone no longer prepared to go along with the norms of the world, of society. Societies, the group, groups. Um, by an individual, Sangharakshita means someone who is searching, questing, even longing for, we can only call it the beyond, what the Buddha calls the unborn, the uncreated, the unmade, deathless liberation. This was the way the Buddha described his own, uh, his own uh, early uh, motivation to go forth, to quest, to follow what's known as the Arya Pariyasana the noble quest. An individual is someone who seeks nothing other than a total transformation. So a spiritual community, a sangha, comes about, happens, forms, when individuals like this come together in friendship, in harmony, in cooperation. They come together to live together, to practice together, to work together, to play together, sometimes simply to be together, sometimes to sort of challenge each other. And together they spark each other off. They inspire each other, challenge each other, provoke one another, and they explore, they quest together. And when that happens, when you get individuals coming together like this, a magic happens, like 1,250 monks around the Buddha sitting in silence in harmony. Something happens greater than the sum of the parts. Some other kind of consciousness which is very, very hard to put into words. And spiritual communities open out to others. They're not exclusive. They're not a clique. They open out to others who are waking up, who could wake up, who have woken up. Individuals in Spiritual communities want, in the end, everybody to wake up and for this earth, this land, to become itself a spiritual community. So, having told us about spiritual communities and about Manichaeism, Sangharakshita, in that lecture of Vision of History, told us what his vision of history was. And his vision of history uh, is a vision of a battle even a war, between spiritual communities of individuals and the group. That's his vision of history. It's a vision of a battle between those emerging creative forces that want individuals to wake up in all their uniqueness, in all their unique flowering, wants them to wake up in free association with one another without compulsion to create sangha, That versus the group, those destructive forces that want uniformity, conformity, 
mediocrity, banality, homogeneity that seek to reduce man to his lowest common denominator. Consumer, sex object, economic unit, appendage of technology, wage slave, however you want to call it. Rather than what he really is in his distinctive humanness. Humanness. I'm using uh, the word humanness as a translation of a very beautiful word in Marathi that I learned when I lived in Maharashtra in India. Marathi is the language of Maharashtra. Manuski is this word. Manuski. Uh, it's a very, very powerful word in Marathi because uh, it means seeing humans as humans, which is a very big deal in a society dominated by caste, dominated by seeing people in terms of their membership of a particular caste, a particular group, a particular uh, region, a particular subcaste. To see a man in his humanness, to see him in his manuski, is an extraordinarily powerful thing to do. It means seeing him with dignity, being with him in his dignity, and you're in your dignity. And that humanness, of course, has the potential for so much more, to be a hero, a god, a bodhisattva, a Buddha. Those things are the unique flowering, full flowering of that humanness. So the spiritual community is all about the support and the, the development of that unique, vibrant humanness, that Buddha potential. So in that talk all those years ago, Sangharachta was telling us that our own little, and it was very little and still actually is very little, spiritual community was part of a great history, a great tradition, a descendant of a great tradition of spiritual communities down the ages of individuals coming together to form spiritual communities. We were part, therefore, of the battle, part of the war against the group. And he also said in that talk that in this battle the spiritual community conducts itself in an entirely different way to the group. The spiritual community cannot, for example, be violent, cannot use violence or power. If it did, it would cease to be a spiritual community, whereas the group has no compulsion about using violence and power, even to suppress spiritual communities. So it's going to be a very unusual battle. It's an unusual battle an unusual war, and the warriors that make up the spiritual community, and they are warriors in a spiritual community, are very unusual warriors, very special warriors. They'll have to be. And the question is, do you want that challenge? Do you want to be one of those warriors? Do you want to engage in the struggle, in the battle, the war against the forces of uniformity, mediocrity, and banality that would repress the truly unique and distinctively human. Let's really be very clear. If you're interested in leading a Buddhist life, you have to be a warrior. On one occasion, the Buddha exclaimed to his full-time wandering disciples, okay, let's call them monks, monks, we are warriors. Monks, we are warriors. And what are we fighting? We are fighting greed. We are fighting hatred. We are fighting delusion. Monks, we are warriors. So that gives us some idea of what we're fighting. Greed, hatred, delusion. The three poisonous roots. The hub of the wheel of life. Symbolised by the cock, the snake and the hog that deep, blind animal nature, which is within ourselves and which is all around us. That is what we're fighting. I'm going to explore more of that a little later. But one thing is very clear from this quotation from the Buddha. The Dharma life is a warrior's life. You will come across people, even sometimes in our own movement, who actually don't like this language. It's too willful. 
It's too uh, one-sided, too masculine. It's all about letting go, relaxing, opening up, all that kind of thing. This is a travesty of the spiritual life. The Dharma life is about being a warrior. So I want to dwell more generally on the warrior, the character, if you like, of the warrior, first of all. At least something about the character of the warrior. First of all, a warrior, of course, is someone who does. A warrior does. A warrior acts. A warrior is a man who acts. No doubt there are women warriors too. This could be an equal opportunities talk. It will be if other people see it. But I'm talking to men right now. And I'm a man myself, I think, on a good day. <laughs> so a warrior is a man that does, a man that acts. A warrior cannot be passive. A warrior does not accept a soft reward. A warrior does not expect to be given something for nothing. I think one of the great problems of our culture in the modern West, and it's spreading all over, is the ease with which our desires are gratified. It's just so easy to get what we want. We feel a bit bored, a bit empty, a bit troubled. Instead of looking into that, instead of doing something, creating something, we can download a movie, play a computer game. I've never played a computer game in my life. <laughs> Go online, tweet, get onto Facebook, see what our friends are doing, Google something, text someone. Anything but engage with our reality. And do something. It's all too easy. We even expect meditation, Buddhism, to be easy. We reduce it to a technique. A bit of mindfulness on the NHS to soften the pain. You know, just to kind of tone it down. And it's really sad to see this sometimes. I do see young men. And, you know, they're young, but there's, there isn't... I wonder about the vitality of youth. The vitality of youth being lost in all this. And yes, issues around masculinity. I think there are issues around masculinity. I meet guys on retreats, and they're kind of almost apologising for being men. But it's absolutely wonderful, being a man. It's just the most beautiful... Thing you can, you can imagine. If you've got issues about masculinity, you've got issues to do with meta and, and having a real kind of, uh, well, real respect and valuing of yourself. I mean, it, same with some older men too. You know, their energy can just not be activated because somehow they've just gone passive, you know, and they've accepted the sort of trips that can be laid on them by, by society. Everybody gets sort of dull and blocked. I know this isn't the whole story, but let's be drastic. <laughs> a warrior acts. A warrior does. A warrior is always looking to act. A warrior takes initiative. The warrior is always the first to speak in the sense of the first to respond, going out to people. You know, to go out and welcome them with courtesy and so on. That's what a warrior does. Warriors are very very courteous people. They're the first to make a move, the first to create. Something is you know, happening in a room, a problem or something like that, or dirt, I don't know. They're the first to clean it. Listen to the Buddha. Dhammapada, verse 168. Get up! Don't be heedless. Live practicing the Dhamma, the Dhamma which is true action. One who lives practicing the Dhamma dwells happily both in this world and the other world. So I love that. Get up. Don't be heedless. So a warrior is not passive. He acts, he does. Uh, a Dhamma warrior engages in true action. The word in uh, Pali is sucharita. Su meaning good, true, beautiful, right. Charita meaning walking, faring, practicing, acting. And by the way, Order members, dharmacharis, practicing the dharma in the verse, one who lives practicing the dharma, that's a translation of dharmachari. So, message for dharmacharis get up, don't be heedless, 
Live practicing the Dharma, Dharma Chari. There you go. <laughs> so yes, Dharma practice. All so, so a warrior acts doing Dharma practices. So all the practices you've been doing on the retreat here. Um, you know, all the things you've been doing, meditating together, puja, working together, discussion groups, playing. Uh, it's great to see some playing. It's a shame we didn't get the volleyball up. I would have been out there if you had. Um, and of course, taking all this back, what you've gained in this environment, to the rest of your life and keeping that true action, that Dharma action going. Another quality of the warrior is that a warrior needs to serve. A true warrior, a real warrior, will find a master, a lord, a king, to serve. A lord that holds a vision. A lord even that embodies a vision. You do get, of course, freelance warriors, ronin, I think they're called in Japan. But they tend to be problematic They're problematic because they serve themselves. They serve their ego and they can become something in the end of a tyrant. A warrior needs a master, a king, a wise and glorious king. For Buddhists, of course, the king is the Buddha himself. He is the king for us because he embodies our highest and our deepest human aspirations. When we study, when we imagine, when we even imaginatively live through the life of the Buddha, and that's what we should do when we study the life of the Buddha, we follow the life of a Dhamma warrior. He begins his life like us, trapped in a very, very worldly life, weighed down by it all. There's a very ancient verse, uh, almost a song, a ballad, that the Buddha is depicted as singing, which goes, cramped is this life at home, dusty indeed its sphere, life gone forth is wide open, there you live, under the sky. The Buddha, of course, literally left home. He was a homeless wanderer until he was an old man of 80. But his living out under the sky wasn't just a literal living out under the sky. It was a spiritual state, a psychological state, if you like. It was the wide open life, the boundless life, the questing life, the self-transcending life, always living one step beyond the given, always pushing out into the open, beyond the boundaries that, you know, any boundary that you've sort of encountered. And in the Buddha's early life, you see him mastering himself, mastering meditation, mastering his fear. It's that wonderful passage where he got in the Bayabera Sutta, the panic, fear and dread Sutta, where he goes into the jungle to test himself into the most densest thicket, far away from people. And at night, he would just be overwhelmed with the panic the fear and the dread. And his way of training with this was to not distract himself from what was happening. So if it came on when he was lying down, he stayed lying down. If it came on while he was walking, he stayed walking until that fear had been looked right into, until it had been seen, until it had faded away. Of course, he also went on wrong paths. He made mistakes. Uh, And you see him learning from his mistakes. You see this wonderful realisation that he's wasted six long years of his life on a fruitless pursuit. That takes some courage. That's another quality of a Dhamma warrior. A Dhamma warrior can recognise their mistakes. And eventually, of course, he wakes up. He gains enlightenment. He breaks through into enlightenment. So he's an example for us of the Dharma warrior's life. In a way, it's easier for us because if the Buddha is our master, we can follow the path he discovered. We don't have to kind of make it up ourselves. We don't have to. 
go on those wrong paths. Well, at least not so much, uh, although we do. But we can follow the path that he discovered. So he embodies our ideal and we follow his path. We train in his training. We train in his teaching. So a warrior has also a quality of receptivity. A Dharma warrior has a quality of receptivity to the Buddha. There's reverence for the Buddha. A warrior will look up to the Buddha and see that the Buddha just embodies so much. The word um, I'm using, uh, the, the, I'm using this word reverence, it's a translation of the Pali word garava. And the etymology of garava is interesting. It means that which has weight, that which is weighty for you and really has, makes a deep impression on you. That's what you revere. That's what you look up to because you've been deeply touched by the quality of somebody. A warrior will have even more than reverence. He'll have faith, confidence in his teacher and even devotion to his teacher. And there's a great sense of courtesy uh, in a warrior. Warriors actually have, very importantly, the so-called feminine qualities, so-called feminine qualities. They can revere, they can be tender, they can adorn, especially in devotional practice like puja, the embodiment of their ideal. Uh, And For a warrior, the Buddha is not only the master, the warrior regards the Buddha as extremely beautiful. The Buddha is extremely beautiful to the warrior. So there's this strong emotional connection uh, with the master. So that's very important, that uh, a warrior feels to the Buddha this, this quality of a strong, intense, positive emotional connection. This is what puja, by the way, is all for. And it's why we have all these paintings, all these images with their colours and symbolism. These all embody qualities of the Buddha, qualities of enlightenment, qualities of the Master, that can really speak to us. This is really very, very important. All this imagery that's developed in Buddhist tradition, it's all developed because people have different ways into enlightenment, different ways of approaching the Buddha. So if you find yourself being really fascinated by a particular image, a particular, with its particular qual- uh, colours, its particular gest- gestures, that's your way in to enlightenment because you have this fascination and this strong emotional response. And we need this strong emotional involvement. Uh, if we don't have this strong emotional involvement, sooner or later, our emotions will go elsewhere. There's a story uh, from a sutra about Ananda, who was, of course, the Buddha's very close personal friend and attendant. And Ananda got into a bit of difficulty. One day when Ananda was out uh, begging water, I think, he met somebody named Matangi. And Matangi was um, a bit of a black magic lady, black magic woman, uh, you might say. And she wanted Ananda married off to her daughter, So she put a spell on Ananda, a kind of love spell, one of those hexes. And Ananda, when he saw her daughter, completely lost it. Completely went, you know, over the top, head over heels, in love, wanted to give up the Dharma life, the gone forth life, the Dharma warrior's life, wanted to settle down, have a family and all the rest of it. Um, You know, it was completely and utterly gone. It happens. The Buddha didn't rebuke him. This is really interesting. The Buddha didn't have a kind of go at him and tell him off for being a bad boy. He just asked Ananda in his state of crisis a question. He said to Ananda, why did you leave home and follow me? Why did you go forth into the homeless life and take me as your teacher, as your master? Why did you do that? And Ananda thought for a moment and he said, because of your beauty because I found you very beautiful. And the Buddha was, it seems, a very, very attractive, fascinating presence. I mean, imagine seeing the Buddha in his prime, that mindfulness, that dignified, upright, bearing, that radiant quality. There's that kind of mystery 
around him, that fascinating quality. It seems, you know, when people are around the Buddha, they'd feel that anything could happen. Anything is possible. Anyway, as soon as Ananda said, well, it was because of your beauty, because of your fascinating quality, the spell was broken. And he found his way back uh, to the Dharma. So find your king. Find your wise and glorious king. And if you find your wise and glorious king, if you find your master who embodies the ideal for you, whose training you can follow, who is very beautiful and attractive to you, you will also find your companions, your fellow warriors, your brothers in arms. Again, this is something of very great importance. A warrior is not a soloist. He's part of a band. He's part of a community, part of a spiritual community in which there are strong bonds of brotherhood and of friendship and of real care for one another. Some of these brothers will have great experience of the battle. They will be our Kalyanamitras, as they're called, our spiritual friends, even our teachers. Others, of course, will be on a similar level of experience to us. Others at a less less experience than us. But the bonds of friendship are strong between them all. And they need to be, because this is a very tough battle, a tough war against a formidable and dangerous foe. And that foe is Mara. Mara. That's a way of describing the foe. Throughout all Buddhist texts, in all traditions there is regular reference to Mara. He makes his most dramatic appearance in certain versions of the life of the Buddha. And in those stories, Mara does everything he can to break the Buddha's resolve, to break his movement towards enlightenment. Mara does everything he can because he knows that this man is about to break free. And if he breaks free, then the way will be open for everybody, for all beings to break free. So who or what is Mara? So Mara is the collective name for all those things, all those forces within us and around us that obstruct the way to enlightenment. All those things within and without that keep us down. Mara is all those forces of uniformity, mediocrity, banality that want to prevent the emerging of that unique individual urge towards self-transcendence, liberation. The brilliant sun of wisdom and loving kindness is a great enlightenment verse of the Buddha said after his enlightenment. When things grow clear to the blazing, meditating shaman, the Buddha describes himself as a shaman here, when things grow clear to the blazing, meditating shaman, he shines like a great sun, routing the hosts of Mara. Interestingly, Mara has no one personification. You'll never find, as far as I know, in any kind of book on Buddhist art, a picture of Mara. He's a shapeshifter. He's one who operates in the shadows. He's an assassin who can take any form, who can adopt any mode to disrupt us. So this means that a Dharma warrior is going to need to turn himself somehow or other into something of a magician. You're going to need to develop that sixth sense if you're going to get involved properly in this battle. A lot of the time, We're so in Mara's grip, we don't even have a sense of him. But sometimes we break right out into open territory, into freedom. And that time, strangely, is a really dangerous time. Because then he can do something really nasty that can tie us in knots for weeks, months, years, a whole lifetime. So a Dharma warrior has to wake wake right up to this Mara. He needs to see him for what he is, then drive him out and stay vigilant to keep him out. 
And seeing him, knowing him, is actually the real battle, certainly half the battle. In Buddhist texts, Mara can come along to ensnare the Buddha or a great disciple. And they often deal with him by just seeing him for what he is, not as some heavy evil, not like the devil or Satan or anything like that. But actually, somebody is a bit pathetic, something that's a bit pathetic. They often just say, Mara, you are seen. Mara, you are known. And Mara sort of skulks away, fades away. Go and find somebody else. So let's identify some forms of Mara. Let's get him into view. And let's see what the warrior needs to do to fight. So traditionally there are four Maras. There's Klesha Mara, which is Mara as defilement. Machumara, Mara as death, who is also the god of love. Skandamara, the Mara of conditioned existence. And Devaputramara, Mara who is a son of the gods, which means that Mara is a sort of external entity. So first of all, Klesha Mara. Klesha is often translated as defilement. It literally means affliction. And the kleshas are the mental defilements, the poisons, the obstructions that afflict us because they prevent our growth. They prevent our freedom. And there's many lists of defilements. So here's a few for you. Craving, hatred, conceit, doubt, fear, jealousy, ignorance, and so on and so forth. I'm sure you've all got your own favourites, that lot. So I'm just going to select two here in this section. A really big one, a big closure, and you have to know this is a Mara, is doubt. Doubt. Doubt and indecision. There's that wonderful moment in the life of the Buddha when, in, with Mara's attack, when Mara sort of adopts the form of a kind of barrister, a lawyer, turns up in front of the Buddha and says, Ah, you are a warrior. You are a kshatriya. You are of kshatriya caste. So why are you here meditating? Why, how are you doing that? That is not somebody of your caste should be doing this thing. So the Buddha deals with that. But then Mara says, Ah, but you are sitting on the Vajrasana, the Vajrasana, the diamond throne. And the Vajrasana is the centre of the universe. It's where the universe first formed. A lot of mythology here. So Mara says, only someone who's about to gain enlightenment, who's practised the six paramitas, generosity, ethics, patience, Effort, meditation, wisdom. Only somebody who's practised these has a right to sit here to gain enlightenment. And the Buddha said, well, yes, I've practised the paramitas. I have every right to sit here. I am about to gain enlightenment. So Mara says, all very well, all very good. But who is your witness? Who has seen you practise these paramitas? I don't see anybody. You know, very dramatic scene. He really is a, a slimy kind of lawyer. And the Buddha, unfazed, just gently touches the earth with his, with his fingertip and says, the earth has seen me. On this earth I've practised these paramitas and the earth has seen all my acts. So let the earth bear witness. And there's this wonderful moment where the earth goddess emerges out of the earth, the wonderful golden long-haired goddess holding a, 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 a lovely vase. And she says, yes, I have seen it all. I've seen the Bodhisattva practice all these paramitas for so many lifetimes. And Mara is gone at that. There's nothing he can do in the face of that. Doubt does this, doesn't it? Doubt is such a kind of, it's like a, the doubt in our heads 
And sometimes there can be even friends that confirm that doubt. That doubt, it really is like that kind of lawyer thing, isn't it? That barrister. You're not good enough. You can't change. Who do you think you are? You know, why, who do you think you are living this life? And so on, just niggling away, undermining you. You can be sitting there in meditation, it's opening up, you're getting into it, and maybe I shouldn't be doing this meditation. Maybe this is the wrong meditation. Why am I here on retreat? I shouldn't be here on retreat. should be doing something else. And so on and so forth. Or doubt in the path, doubt in the way, even. Is this a good path? Is this the way? Shouldn't I be practicing something else? So a warrior has to go through such doubt. And this doubt is really, what it really is, is an unwillingness to really commit ourselves to something. It's a wavering, an indecision. And this doubt creates such a fog. There's a Hindu uh, goddess called Mohini, meaning the deluder. And that's what we can end up in if we entertain this doubt about ourselves, about what life is for, about really doing something. We get into this fog of delusion, fog of confusion. And as I say, that might not just be in ourselves, there'll be other people only too willing to, to encourage us in that confusion. You know, I was talking to a guy the other day, a very, very bright young man, and he's just gets so conflicted about what to do in terms of his commitment uh, to something. And you just want to say, just act anything, as long as it's skillful. Just do something. Get out of the fog. But the Buddha is very strong. He calls the earth the witness. The goddess of the earth has seen and known all skillful action. And she rises up. So what I see that as meaning is the warrior needs to touch the earth of his aspiration, the earth of his faith, the earth of his efforts. You know, we have, it's so important to recognise the efforts that we're making, the efforts that we have made, and to touch those. Or go to a friend, go to a wise spiritual friend and ask him to be the witness of your efforts. Ask him to be the witness of your aspiration. And this is what happens when we get ordained, by the, by the way. Ordination isn't a sort of external ceremony. It, it, there is an external ceremony, but the meaning of ordination is that you're going for refuge, your commitment to the Dharma life, free of doubt, free of confusion, is witnessed and testified to by your spiritual friend. And this creates a tremendous release of energy in you. I mean, though, if you're really not sure what to do uh, in this life, sometimes people get into such a pickle they don't know what to do, um, help someone. Do something for others. This was the answer of Dada Rinpoche, um, one of Sangharachita's teachers, when he was asked by somebody, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the best thing to do is. So many options open to me. And Dada Rinpoche said, help someone else. In other words, stop thinking about yourself. Because sometimes in this doubt, there can be a real conceit. A real conceit. Sometimes we can get into that sort of state where we think we are so special. I need to find that special thing that really expresses my special genius. And you see people sort of faffing around in the grip of this doubt and conceit. It's not just doubt, it's a kind of conceit. They're the special one. The special one. And it's just nonsense. None of us are special, actually. No, unique, but not special. Feeling that you're special is such a uh, an ego trip, and we really need to get beyond it. Warriors get beyond that. Warriors need to get beyond that. Uh, and if you're faffing around, well, listen to this from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada. Those who have not led the spiritual life or obtained the wealth of merit in their youth, such as these brood over the past like aged herons in a pond without fish. Those who have not led the spiritual life or obtained the wealth of merit in their youth, such as these, lie like worn-out arrows lamenting the things of old. So the Buddha's very clear, while you have some youth, some health, some energy, get on with the Dharma life. Create the wealth of merit. The wealth of merit, what that really means is develop momentum. 
through skillful action. That's what merit really is. It's a momentum, an energy, a passion even. Be like a heron flying through space. Be the freedom of that arrow loosed at immortal, deathless targets. Don't let the mara of doubt and conceit ensnare you. So the second closure I want to mention is ill will, resentment, hatred, grudge holding. You know the territory. Uh, In the life of the Buddha, Mara comes as his army. He creates this army, this massive, monstrous, demonic horde. I mean, they really go to town in in Buddhist art with this. You see these fantastically sort of misshapen, multi-headed, gaping mouthed um, demonic hordes appearing, chucking flaming coals, missiles, nuclear warheads if they had them. Um, all sorts of stuff, and there's just a threat of massive violence. Massive violence on the Buddha. You know, imagine that. You're sitting there under the Bodhi tree, moving deeply into meditation, and then suddenly there's this massive, you know, violent, demonic horde who are going to do you over. And they're shouting as well, kill, strike, slay. And the Buddha is a warrior. A normal warrior, out of fear, would respond with hate and violence. The Buddha was no normal warrior. He was a Dhamma warrior. And it's said that he just looked at all this and he embraced all this violence with powerful metta. Powerful loving kindness. Great love. Maha Maitri. A love bigger than all of that violence. And there was a magical transformation. The missiles just started to turn into red lotus flowers, which just fell as an offering around the Buddha, just hung in the air around him, adorning him, beautifying him. We need to recognise hatred, ill will, resentment, grudge holding for what they are. They are Mara. We often try to rationalise these things. You know, they need to learn. They need to learn. So it's okay if I'm really angry with them. They hurt me. I can't forgive them because they need to learn. We come up with all sorts of rationalisations, you know, in in our relationships of, of various kinds. But the Buddha is very clear in the Dhammapada. Hatred is never pacified by hatred here in the world. It is only pacified through love. This is an eternal law. And by love, the Buddha doesn't mean nice, sweet, flabby sentiment. He's talking about the cultivation, the activation of a powerful transforming force. It does begin in a very humble way. It does begin actually with ordinary friendliness. Ordinary friendliness, that's the start. But if you practice the metabhavna, if you're persistent, if you keep going, eventually you start to open up to a great overwhelming wave well, of real transforming loving kindness that transforms your own hatreds and can even start to pacify the hatred and violence around you. And then we can be a great force of good in the world. The Buddha was certainly like that. You get the impression of somebody of enormous dignity, protected by this powerful force that he was in tune with, open up to, that he developed, that could just not uh, not affect him or destroy him in any way, even if people were abusive to him, even if people threatened violence. He was just too big to be pushed around. So secondly, Machumara, Mara as death. This is also Mara as Karma Deva, uh, the god of love or sensuality, the Indian Eros. So Mara as death is the same as Mara as Eros. So let's have a look at Mara as the god of love. We've already seen a bit of that with Ananda. It's very easy to fall under the spell of the God of Love. It's very easy for one of his flowery arrows to be uh, 
aphrodisiac arrows come to that uh, for them to get stuck, lodged right in you. And then you're in great danger of your Dharma life dying, just to make it really bald. Yes, I've already told you about, there's so many stories about this, I've told you about Ananda, but so many stories of Dharma warriors opening up to the greater reality, alive, open, and bam, they're ensnared, caught up. You know, one of the things that the Mara sends to the Buddha at the time of his enlightenment are his daughters, and they really put on a show. I mean, it's absolutely everything, romance, sex, I mean, you read some descriptions in Buddhist texts. I mean, and these texts were kind of recorded by monks, and you kind of wonder. Very, very, very sexy and sensuous. I think if we were presented with them, we'd be gone. We'd be utterly (laughs) gone. But if we go, if if we fall into that, it so often happens. It all can be seen so sort of creative and poetic and psychedelic, you know, when, when the God of love kind of ensnares us. The thing is, though, in time, it becomes incredibly dull. And we end up with a very sort of, for want of a better way of putting it, bourgeois existence. This is why we need to find the beautiful, the fascinating, the love, even the ecstatic love, in the Dharma life. A Dharma warrior needs to find this. We need to kind of find it with our brothers in a particular way. We need to transform it. Warriors... Uh, warriors will dance to ecstatic rhythm with other Dharma warriors. I don't quite know what that means. It just sort of came to me when I was writing. But that actually is what happens. We need something of that. Uh, And true warriors kind of dress up and enter the ritual, enter the dance. We need to have that quality of the ecstatic in our Dharma life. And yes, see the Buddha see enlightenment as utterly beguiling and fascinating. Buddhist tradition has been so concerned about this. You, e- you even have, have a bodhisattva, which is a sort of goddess, uh, <coughs> who embodies enlightenment as fascination. This is Kurukula, the beautiful, fascinating Kurukula. She's a red, semi-naked goddess with a tiger skin miniskirt, Uh, decked in beautiful red lotus flowers, holding a bow and arrow and goads and hooks and lassoes. And she sends out the aphrodisiac arrows to draw people to the Dharma. Meditate on Kurukula and you won't want for anything. (laughs) I'm sure you all know how powerful the erotic is. Maybe this is something you can follow up if you're having any discussion groups. The erotic is powerful. Sex, love, romance, passion. That energy somehow or other needs to be present in Dharma warrior's life. It's got to come in. It's got to come in. That me- one, one way of looking at that is you need to bring all your creativity, all your ingenuity to serve the Dharma life. Don't leave out material, things that you do, interests that you have, that are really important to you, that you really love. Somehow you need to connect those deeply with the Dharma. And yes, there are times when you can feel that you're sort of surrendering to, for want of a better way of putting it, Dharma passion. Dharma rather. And then you feel a different kind of death coming on, a sort of spiritual death, the death of conditioned being itself. A warrior needs to go through real spiritual death, through surrendering to Dharma passion. So this brings us to Skandamara, the Mara of conditioned existence itself. The Mara of constructed, habitual, limited existence. This is a very subtle Mara. Sometimes Mara is called the Lord of Limitations. When a Dharma warrior begins to go deeply into the Dharma, he start, what starts to happen the very boundaries of his being start to get threatened. The deeply habitual forces begin to get very threatened. Sometimes you can feel this, you can experience this, you can have an incredible opening up in meditation. Maybe in friendship and communication, you can feel sort of self and other dissolving. 
that deep, real, authentic meeting with someone. You want to go through the door that's opening. You feel that deeper commitment to the Dharma warrior's life happening. Maybe what's opening up is a more full-time commitment to the Dharma life. Maybe you can feel that you want to give up on career, family expectations, views about what constitutes a respectable, happy life. Or if you have existing responsibilities, you just feel that you need to make a change so that you can actually start to do something different. At these times, Mara tries to assert himself strongly. You start worrying about future security, respectability, what would mum say? Status, all that sort of thing can arise. But the Dharma warrior really has nothing. If you're going to be a Dharma warrior, you have to be poor. I don't mean that, you haven't, you know, that you're literally a pauper, but poor in the sense that there's kind of no security. Uh, Sanganista said at the beginning, I got involved when I was 17, ordained when I was 19. I have no education to speak of. I've had no career. I've never really wanted status. It's not that, I dis- it's not that in a way I had any choice. I think the Dharma was just so strong and I felt such a, well, frankly, a sort of, I really didn't think I was going to make it in the world. Um, didn't have any confidence in that. Uh, at all. And the Dharma was so strong, I just plunged in. And okay, as um, Sanganista says, you know, I, I, I do bang out some Dharma. You know, I ordain people sometimes and all that sort of thing. But really, all those things, all those labels, don't, in a sense, mean anything. Um, a Dharma warrior is a kind of Dharma tramp. <laughs> a Dharma <coughs> bum. A Dharma nobody, actually. Because in the end, everything is going to be taken away. Actually, we have nothing at all. We really don't have anything at all in the end. There's a a verse from the Perfection of Wisdom that keeps coming back to me, which goes, in form, in feeling, will, perception and awareness. They're the skandhas, that's conditioned existence. In form, in feeling, will, perception, awareness. Nowhere in any of them the Bodhisattva finds a place to rest on. Without a home, the Bodhisattvas wander. Ideas never hold them, nor do they grasp at them. The Buddha's enlightenment, they're bound to gain. We're all actually in that condition. Um, We're all wanderers anyway. If you like, the Skandhas are a kind of house. Our body, our world is like a house. We're here for a while and we're passing on in the broken down house of existence. We're wandering. We can be. If we want to be, we can turn this wandering into wandering Dharma warriors. Wandering together to liberate everybody from Mara. Let's go to the fourth Mara. Devaputra Mara, the Mara who is a son of the God. This is a kind of actual external force of obstruction. I see this Mara as the sum total of collective klesha, skanda, uh, of everybody, which is more or less organised and institutionalised into the forces of stagnation and spiritual drought. It's interesting, it's another name of Mara, is Namuchi who was a drought demon. So Mara represents complete spiritual drought. Spiritual infertility. So Mara as the external force is everything that just holds everybody down. And we need to be part of that battle against that. Warriors for the creation of Sangha, of spiritual community. Warriors to liberate the unique the uniquely human, warriors to liberate the self-transcending life, warriors for the emergence of the beautiful from the forces of uniformity. And it's a real battle, but it really is possible to do something. It might seem very, very humble what we do, but something different can come into being. Uh, I was up in Sheffield recently, I'm the president of the centre there, So I go twice a year, and it's a really lively centre. Recommend a visit to the Sheffield Centre. It's a very lively 
Sangha, a very, very good centre. Have a chat with Bodhinagra about going up. Good men's community above the centre. A lot going on there. Um, and I was talking to a Dharmacharini, a, a woman order member, who works in the NHS. Um, and, you know, she works well with her colleagues. She's very committed to her work, to, to, to helping, you know, she works particularly with troubled children and youth. But she said something has happened in the last years where it's just getting more and more unpleasant. It's just getting more and more unethical, the way people treat each other, the way they're treated by management, the way the kind of competitive atmosphere, the lack of consideration, more and more stress. I mean, I hear this from all sorts of people who are working in the world, teachers who come here and so on. It just sounds people are really being put through the mill. And she said it, she felt it's a kind of perilous situation because she can feel it getting worse. But she said the really interesting thing was to go to, to notice one day going to the centre, the Sheffield Buddhist Centre, getting to the, there's a sort of path that goes up a hill to the centre, inside the centre's ground, standing at the bottom of this path and actually feeling she was entering a kind of refuge, entering an environment where she didn't have to be like that. Entering an environment where her individuality, that unique flowering could happen for her and for other people. And what an incredible thing that was. And how it kind of sustained her in that work, very important work that she was doing in the hospital. I was very touched to hear that, very moved by that. Um, And it kind of woke me up because I have a very privileged life living here and living in all sorts of other places. But it just gave me enormous confidence that we can do something, that we can push back these forces that are just going to repress the human. We need to liberate the land from the hog of ignorance. We need to forget ourselves. We need to forget our self-seeking and enter the fray. We need to be Dharma warriors who will restore the land for a world reborn. So I'm going to end with a vision of a warrior, a lord actually, and his warriors. It's a fragment of a poem by David Jones, uh, an unjustly neglected Welsh poet and painter, uh, who actually was a Londoner, but very strong Welsh roots. Um, He died, I think, in the 60s. Um, This is from a fragment called The Hunt, and it's based on an old Arthurian myth. I love uh, his description of the Lord uh, rooting out the hog. Just listen to this. So first of all, there's a few verses on the people who are, and the horses who are kind of lining up around their leader. When the free and the bond and the mountain mares and the fettled horses and the four-penny curs and the hounds of status in the wide jewelled collars, when all the shining aria rode with the diademed leader who directs the toil, whose face is furrowed with the weight of the enterprise, the lord of the conspicuous scars, whose visage is fouled with the hogspittle, whose cheeks are fretted with the grime of the hunt toil. If his forehead is radiant like the smooth hill in the lateral light, it is corrugated like the defences of the hill because of his care for the land and for the men of the land. If his eyes are narrowed for the stress of the hunt and because of the hog, they are moist for the ruin and for love of the recumbent bodies and the strew, and that strew the ruin. If his embroidered habit is clearly from a palace wardrobe, it is mired and rent, and his bruised limbs gleam from between the rents by reason of the excessive fury of his riding when he rode the close thicket as though it were an open land. Indeed, was it he riding the forest ride, or was the tangled forest riding? For the thorns and flowers of the forest and the bright elm shoots and the twisted tanglewood of stamen and stem clung and meshed him and starred him with variety. And the green tendrils guarded him 
and the briery loops galoon him with splinter spike and broken blossom twining his royal needlework. And ruby petal points counter the countless points of his wounds. And from his lifted cranium, where the priced tresses dragged with sweat, stray his straight brow furrows under the twisted diadem to the numbered bones of his scarred feet. And from the saturated forelock of his maned mare to her streaming flanks and in broken festoons for her quivering fetlocks. He was caparisoned in the flora of the woodlands of Britain, and like a stricken Newman of the woods, he rode with the trophies of the woods upon him, who rode for the healing of the woods and because of the hog. Like the breast of the cock thrush that is torn in the hedge war, when bright on the native mottle the deeper mottling is, and brighting the diversity of textures, and crystal bright on the delicate fret the clear dewdrops gleam, so was his dappling and his dreadful variety. The speckled lord of Pridane, in his twice-embroidered coat, the bleeding man in the green, and if through the trellis of green and between the rents of the needlework the whiteness of his body shone, so did his dark wounds glisten. And if his eyes from their scrutiny of the hog track and from considering the hog turned to consider the men of the host so that the eyes of the men and of the host met his eyes, it would be difficult to speak of so extreme a metamorphosis. When they paused at the check, when they drew breath, and the sweat of the men of the host and of the horses salted the dew of the forest floor, and the hard breathing of the many men and of the many dogs and of the horses woke the fauna cry of the great forest and shook the silent flora, and the extremity of anger, alternating with sorrow on the furrowed faces of the aria, transmogrified the calm face of the morning, as when the change wind stirs the, and the colours change, in the boding thunder calm, because this was the day of the passion of the men of Britain when they hunted the hog. Life for life. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 